This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Welcome to Friend of Maryland. My name is Kat Pauze, and this is a fat-friendly space. Today on Friend of Maryland, I talk about the upcoming fat takeover of the Polifani and invite you to join me. I chat with Angela Pellegrino, a finely tuned blend of Mary Poppins and a John Waters character. And I spotlight a piece from Virginia Soul Smith about the fact that skinny people also die. I'm very pleased to share that I've been invited by an editor of the Polyphony. Polyphony? Not really sure. To take over the website for a week with fatness. Now, this website is hosted by the Institute for Medical Humanities at Durham University, and it provides a platform to stimulate, catalyze, provide, expand, and intensify conversations in the critical medical humanities. Now, I love the idea of a fat takeover of this site, forcing conversations about fatness in the medical humanities. There are a lot of amazing topics we could cover, including the role of white supremacy in shaping anti-fat attitudes, fat stigma as a social determinant of health, how the medical community can ensure to provide fat patients with ethical and evidence-based health care. I mean, there's so many kinds of topics we can explore. And here's the thing. I need your help to make it happen. I can't take over the website for a week by myself. The plan is to have several, um, possibly up to five authors, write pieces for the takeover and that a new piece will be published on the website each day. At the very start of the week, an introductory piece that I'll write will kind of kick off uh, the week, and then we'll have a new piece written by somebody different with a different kind of angle, a different topic within fatness in the medical humanities. Rather than shoulder tapping people, which is what I usually do in these situations, I'm putting the call out wide. Um, anyone who would be keen to participate, all you need to do is let me know. Uh, you don't have to be an academic. Anyone who enjoys writing about fatness and has something to say about fatness in the medical humanities are absolutely welcome. You should know that the articles that are going to be published on the website are to be between 800 and 2,000 words using Chicago style, uh, include the references. And um, we don't have a, a set deadline per se once I have – once I know who's going to be contributing, uh, then I can talk back to the editor of the site to work it out. But I think they'd like it to be sometime in September. Um, so you would have plenty of time to write your piece. If you are interested in possibly helping me take over this medical humanities website for a week to dominate it with conversations about fatness, let me know. Uh, you can email me at friendofmarilyn at aol.com. 
friendofmarilyn at nasi.ac.nz. You can reach out on Twitter at F-O-M-N-Z. Same on Instagram. Uh, would definitely love to hear from you and really excited about this opportunity. Joining me today is Angela Pellegrino, a self-characterized, finely-tuned blend of Mary Poppins and a John Waters character, which I have to say is possibly one of the best introductions I've ever had on this show. (laughs) Angela, thank you so much for coming on Friend of Marilyn. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. So, I mean, I just have to start with, like, okay, Mary Poppins, John Waters' character, blend of, how did that characterization ever even come to you you, you want some history there um, <laughs> just, just so, a little maybe like I just yeah, I'll, try, I'll try and keep it brief absolutely um so I, I've always loved Mary Poppins like just something about like her like magical intuition her ability to wow like since I was little I was like that is the woman and like that Victorian fashion is just amazing too so I was always just really enamored by her and the relationship she had with Dick Van Dyke quite frankly in that movie so very very into it um and and like as a mother like just kind of adopted that persona but then you know sometime later in years of life I really like I found John Waters films and I was like this is where I belong (laughs) like these are my people (laughs) they get me and so like I just became completely enamored with the works of John Waters and like the disgrace land trashiness of it all and um, Mary Poppins is practically perfect, and I feel like the practically is the John Waters essence. So, so I mean, would you say that your fashion style is that mix? Is it the Victorian meets trash? Is that? I mean, I can be a little bit classy, <laughs> but it's kind of it's it's you know it's kind of a hodgepodgey like slutty crayon box. <laughs> So I mean, um, sl- slutty crayon box. Sure, why wouldn't you? Um, my friend Kath Reed, um, who blogs at or used to blog at the Fat Heffalump, she she describes her style, I think, as drunk toddler or something, uh-huh. something along that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 kind of like that, and you know, it's a little dirty because I like to get dirty, and like I got kids, so there's always like a stain somewhere, and and I also tend to wear makeup like not trying to make it look like I'm not wearing makeup. Like if I wear makeup, I'm going to go all the way. Another appeal that John Waters had to me. Like, yeah. Why would you pretend you're not wearing makeup? Like just paint that garage door blue. Just go for it. eh? Yeah, totally. So, you know, there's, there's my aesthetic. (laughs) Oh, I I very much appreciate that. Um, And uh, and now I'm like, "Mm, I need to go check out what pictures you've posted of yourself and your various (laughs) outfits that you wear online. Um, Angela, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are a dress person. Is that correct? Like you wear dresses. I actually, you know, if I calculate back, I stopped wearing pants in 2006. Oh, wow. Okay. So you've been a a dress person for a while. Is it a dress person or an anti-pants person or a bit of both? Probably a bit of both. Right. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I found some comfort in dresses, right? Like I can kick, I can bend like, and you know, I don't want to like steal anybody's copyright on that, but definitely I have more mobility in dresses. And also like, they don't tend to remind me how much I can't fit in them, (laughs) you know, like which pants so often do. 
Um, and there's just all too much cotton going on in the whole like nether regions with the, pants. the crotch area. Yeah. Yes, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of it. And dresses just gave me more mobility, more like flow, um, kept it ladylike. And, you know, I didn't have to worry about sizing up or sizing down too much, quite frankly, you know, depending on where we fluctuated throughout the years. Had you kind of always had kind of an anti-pant vibe, but it was only in 2006 that you like fully embraced it? Or was there something that shifted along the way for you? Well, you know, I love Mary Poppins and I love John Waters and that's just spandex and dresses. So uh, it just, I guess it just came to full fruition right about 2006. I was like, why am I trying to do buttons and zippers right now? Mm -mm. (laughs) So, um, I mean, no, it's, it's funny. I mean, because part of the reason I ask is actually like, not since 2006 actually probably closer to more like 2016 for me um my wardrobe is now almost 100 percent dresses as well um i remember reading or listening to something leslie kinzel um who's someone who i've long followed in the fat activism movement she kind of talking about what she loved most about dresses was being able to just kind of throw one on and it was a full outfit. Like she felt fully put together. And, you know, for a lot, a lot of fat people, that's one of the kind of respectability politics that a lot of us find ourselves kind of falling into and playing, like making sure that we look put together when we leave our houses um, as a way to make ourselves more palatable, you know, if you were for the general public. And I remember hearing her say that and thinking, huh, you know, at that point I probably wasn't, ever wearing a dress unless I absolutely had to. Um, But I, you know, started getting some that were in like my correct size and in cuts that I liked and fabrics that I like. And yeah, now I pretty much, I on occasion will wear a piece of jean, a pair of jeans. I really like, uh, I I really like a good pair of jeans, but I probably own one pair of jeans. That's it. Everything else dresses. Yeah, that's fair. I think mine started out as skirts because I really had an affinity for like my vintage like Torback t-shirts. So it was skirts and t-shirts for a while. I just kind of did not like the constraint that pants offered me. And I did. It, I just realized it. it was actually February 2006. So I, I'm not great at math. I'm a social That is worker. specific. Like I appreciate that. You're like February 26, 2006. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was the whole realization. I was like, why am I trying to do this? This is not yeah. comfortable for me. So, I mean, what alongside the slutty crayon box, like, would you consider yourself high femme? Like, would that be part of your Absolutely. aesthetic? Absolutely. I'm okay. definitely a high femme. Like, there's a lot of, like, cardigan and sweaters that go on. I don't, I you know, I think I might own, like, I, I have a couple pairs of shorts that I'll don, like, should I have to go, like, out on a hike or something. But I really mostly only wear heels. Like I, um, I wear a lot of hair ribbons, a lot of hair flowers, like makeup is generally part of it. And not to say that those are all like high femme things, but you put them all together and it's pretty high femme. Um, so, you know, general, and, and my, my dresses are like, uh, quite the array of colors, you know, like they've got a lot of colors, a lot of patterns, a lot of like bright, loud so it's only recently that I was like black and, and kind of as of lately, black spandex has been my best friend. I'm really a big fan of it at this point. I feel like I just want to wear, honestly, like part of me just wants to wear spandex to be like, this is all of me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm tired of trying to pretend it's not there for you, you know? And so I've yeah. really fallen in love with black spandex and, and body con dresses that kind of like, 
accentuate all the parts of myself where like the, you know, for me, I feel like the fashion industry is constantly trying to cover it up. And especially, you know, when I look at like, uh, when I look at what's the words I'm looking for, like fat aligned fashion, you know, when we look at Torrid and Lane Bryant, like sure they give us some swimsuits. Um, but like, really, I feel like the dresses and like, and maybe I shouldn't like just lambaste those names right now, but, but lambaste away. Like, I mean, you know, yeah, I've sliced well, out of all of them. So fuck them. Like, yeah. <laughs> and they're supposed to be, and they're supposed to be like fat focused, but they're like, you know, here's a shawl and a bag and like this flowy drapery that you can like put upon yourself to cover you up. So nobody yeah, there's, they still very much, you know, kind of like the what's flattering and yeah, like the very much yeah. the cover up and stuff. I mean, I have to say that for me, like moving to dresses was actually part, I didn't kind of realize it at the time, but it really did help facilitate partly for me just being comfortable with what my own body looks like all the time. Um, because with shirts and pants or shirts and skirts, you know, there was kind of always the like wanting to make sure that the skirt was long enough, you know, that it went past like my hips, you know, so to like, I don't know, like mirage to, to hide. I mean, there's no hiding my hips. My hips are huge, but with the dress, you know, that's a single piece. um, It is, you, you very clearly can see, even if it's not a bodycon one, on someone of my size, like you very clearly can see the the general kind of outline of my body. There's no masking it or hiding it with, you know, layers or peplums or any of those types of things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I get that. And I think, you know, so much, so much really does try to, so much really does try to like, kind of say like, you know, here's, here's something that's, that's kind of creating an illusion right it's it's less accepting of self and it, and i i'm not going to lie like i catch myself in that sometimes too you know where i have those moments and those days where like i'm still trying to like you know i don't i don't want <laughs> i don't want these people to know that i have rolls or like thick thighs i just got myself a string bikini and i like feel so good in it and i love it so much. i know right but then like i'm like mm, are people ready for these thighs though? <laughs> right. you know? are they ready for this jelly i just don't know um angela before we wrap up uh, are there particular uh clothing brands or lines or dressmakers that you do particularly particularly like um that you know maybe someone listening might be introduced to hmm so so i will say um and and like i i i have found great luck with sheen s-h-e-i-n like they are they are cheap you know of course like we're kind of promoting child labor and i haven't quite effectively figured out how to stay in fashion and step away from child labor yet yeah Um, no i think that's a that's a big problem actually for a lot of fat people just because most of the fashion that fits us is that fast fashion um and of course we know the ethical problems with that yeah um you know i have had some luck with mod cloth in the past but they transitioned over and under new management, I think Walmart bought them. Walmart bought them, yeah. And it's and it's kind of awful. 
Um, so I, I maintained a lot of my collection from there. Once in a while, I find something I like from Torrid. Target does a good job here and there. Like if you go and you catch them at the right time, I have this beautiful pink corduroy dress that reminds me of the Oshkosh overalls I had as a three-year-old. And, and I got that from Target for fairly cheap. So, you know, uh, it, it's kind of like just pick and choose and you find a winner here and there and, and just hold on to it tightly. Bike shorts. <laughs> Torrid got me for bike shorts. Like that's a big win for me. Um, and under summers by Carrie has, has me for, has me for bike shorts too. But yeah, those are probably the top ones I can say that I can select from right now. I'm still, I'm actually on the hunt for like always like better fashion, not child labor created. So yeah, I, I think we all are. Uh, so, you know, watch the space. Feel free to feel free to share more things on social media. I think we're all always looking for ethical, ethical stuff that's cute. One last one. Uh, and I haven't checked this out yet, but my girlfriend just informed me that Hot Topic actually has quite an array of sizes if you go online. So Good to know. I need to go check that out. <laughs> yeah, no, because I mean, you know, talk about slutty crayon box. Um, from what I remember of my youth of Hot Topic. Listen, Angela, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a real treat to chat with you. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. spotlight today is a piece from Virginia Soul Smith, published on June 30th, 2021 on her Substack. It's entitled, Skinny People Die Too, But We Can't Sell Them Weight Loss Drugs. Quote, back in 2013, I wrote a story for Marie Claire called, Can You Be Heavy and Healthy? It's not a long piece. It's not my best work. In rereading it, there are things I would change. But it was kind of turning point for me. It was the first time I succeeded in persuading a mainstream media outlet to let me write about health at every size. It was the first time I interviewed the brilliant Lindo Bacon, who was unbelievably patient and generous with their knowledge. It was the story that enabled me to start connecting some key dots to see all the ways that weight does not equal health. While reporting the story, I interviewed an epidemiologist named Catherine Flegel, who was then a senior scientist at the National Center of Health Statistics at the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention. In 2005, Dr. Flegel published a paper in JAMA called Excess Deaths Associated with Underweight, Overweight, and Obesity, which analyzed the number of deaths associated with each BMI group in the year 2000. Flegel and her colleagues concluded that overweight BMIs were associated with slightly but significantly fewer deaths than normal weight BMIs. Both obese and underweight BMIs were associated with excess deaths compared to the normal weight group. But Dr. Flegel's analysis linked obesity with less than 5% of deaths, while a paper that came out the year prior had linked BMIs in the obese range to over 15% of deaths. There was a lot of criticism that our finding was very surprising, Dr. Flegel told me in 2013, but it really wasn't because many other studies had supported our findings. So many, in fact, that in 2013, Dr. Flegel and her colleagues published a systematic literature review of 97 studies involving almost 3 million participants and concluded, again, that having an overweight BMI is associated with a lower rate of death than a normal BMI in 80% of studies. 
They also found no association with mortality at the low end of the obese range. A literature review is not about producing new science. It's about assessing the science previously done to see what we already know. And what we already knew, both in 2005 and 2013, was that the BMI categories were arbitrarily drawn terrible measures of health. I wrote more about the BMI, but one crucial event always worth revisiting was in 1998 when the National Institutes of Health's Obesity Task Force lowered the BMI's cutoff points for each weight category, a math equation that moved 29 million Americans who had previously been classified as normal weight or overweight into the overweight and obese categories. Many researchers and advocates advocates criticized the decision for pathologizing larger bodies because of the research showing the difficulties of drawing straight lines between weight and health. And there's no question it benefited the diet industry by creating a larger market for the flurry of weight loss drugs that the FDA approved right around the same time. Redux in 1996, Meridia in 1997, and Zenical and Alley in 1999. But as the writer and public health doctoral student Mikey Mercedes wrote so eloquently of our newest FDA-approved weight loss drug, Wegovi, We are prone to selective memory when it comes to weight and health. By the time I interviewed Dr. Flegel in 2013, the controversy of the NIH decision was ancient history, and her exploration of the weak link between weight and mortality felt blisteringly provocative, especially to the research community. I think people will be endlessly surprised by these findings, she told me then. Harvard School of Public Health is very perturbed. They're having a big symposium today to talk about what's wrong with this. I remember being surprised that Dr. Flegel shared that with the journalist, but I also wasn't in a position at that time to do much with the information. That quote didn't even make it into the final piece. I just pulled it out of the eight-year-old interview transcript. And Dr. Flegel offered no theories as to why Harvard School of Public Health was challenging her work. She was completely professional to the point of being rather hard to quote. Well, Dr. Flegel is now retired from the CDC, and last week she told her story. Her article titled The Obesity Wars and the Education of a Researcher, a Personal Account, appeared in the journal Progress in Cardiovascular Diseases. In it, she details the backlash to both her 2005 and 2013 papers, calling out the flawed methodology her critics used to discredit her work, and also detailing the aggressive campaign that included insults errors, misinformation, social media posts, behind-the-scenes gossip, and maneuvers that obesity researchers launched against her. It's a staggering read. Several well-known scholars gave talks and published papers trying to discredit Dr. Flegel and her work, even though their own work had contained, or buried, many of the same findings. They talk frequently about their fear that her research would confuse and mislead the general public with facts? Fat phobia and misogyny are woven throughout the story, of course. Dr. Flegel writes, Some attacks were surprisingly petty. At one point, Professor One posted in a discretion group results regarding salt intake that JAMA had shown a track record of poor editorial judgment by publishing Kathy Flegel's terrible analyses on overweight and mortality. Similarly, again using a diminutive form of my name, Professor One told reporter, Kathy Flegel just doesn't get it. Ah, yes. 
pretending familiarity while asserting your own superiority by giving a woman a nickname. I believe that's page 16 of the Mansplaining Handbook. And if you've been reading my work for any time at all and still don't believe that weight stigma informs how obesity research gets done, I would refer you to the Twitter responses to Dr. Flegel's piece. There are other valid criticisms to be made of Dr. Flegel's work, namely that she is not actually all that radical. She's an epidemiologist who studies obesity. She's still invested in hierarchical notions of weight and health, and she's a highly cited, highly influential person in the sciences, as well as white, says Mikey, who wrote the WeGovi piece and is completing her PhD at Brown University of Public Health. Flegel's published work, published body of work, never questions the utility of BMI, nor does she ever note the way weight categories reinforce and perpetuate anti-fat bias. All she did was point out that some portion of folks in bigger bodies will not die sooner than thin people because of their bodies. And yet, Flegel experienced bullying, harassment, and slander for stepping just a smidge away from the hard line of her field. Imagine what that means for the rest of us who are outright challenging fat-demonizing paradigms, who live in marginalized bodies, and who are not well-established researchers with influential institutional affiliations. It means we have a hell of a lot of work to do. End quote. Thanks for listening to another episode of Friend of Maryland. Friend of Maryland is brought to you by Manawatu People's Radio, triple nine AM. If you'd like to contact the show with questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions for topics or guests, you can email us at friendofmaryland at AOL.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Closing the show is Wilson Phillips with Release Me. That it's time for a change. Mm, but when that change comes, will it still feel the same?
If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.